This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. So we've been talking about two sermons on the purpose of sex. Uh, Last week we talked about what went wrong in the fall uh, in Genesis 3. And so we talked about sexual sin and what causes all of us, every one of us, to have skewed sexual desires and temptations at points in our lives. And so uh, we talked about that. And today I'm going to talk about uh, marriage and sex from Song of Solomon, which you can open up to Song of Solomon, uh, if you would, please. Um, Let me say a couple things about this. I realize not everyone is married in the room. Um, However, uh, most, or many, maybe not most, many who are single in the room right now, and by single I mean not married. Uh, I'm not talking about your dating. I'm talking about single, not married, two categories, single and married. Um, so many people who are single in the room right now will be married, and so this will be instructive for you. And uh, if you are not married and are not going to be married, uh, then this is still beneficial because the whole church benefits as marriages in the church grow and mature and are more godly. We all benefit by godly marriages and godly families. And uh, though I'm going to do a couple on this, I'm also going to preach about sex and singles. And not tonight. But when I do that, I'll say the same thing to the married people. We are all benefit as a church when we have single people that are living for the Lord, godly lives in sexual purity uh, and waiting until marriage. And so we all benefit as a church, whether we're married, uh, we benefit by the purity of our singles. So uh, anyway, we're a family here. So every message won't be, you know, exactly. I'm going to preach on homosexuality. Every message is not going to hit everybody exactly the same way. But because we're a family, we all benefit and we're all listening to a culture that's telling us stuff that I'm not going to be telling, that's, that's, that's different than what I'm going to be telling you from God's word tonight. So let me say that as well. You ever read a book and there's a dedication in the beginning? I, ded- I dedicate this to this book to the church who lives the values of this book, you know, my church like no one else. You ever go to a concert and they say, yeah, we're just going to dedicate this song to the working man. This is for the work. No, no, no. You know, that kind of deal. I never dedicated a sermon, but today's my anniversary and Ginger's. It's our anniversary. And this, is, this was not planned. This was not planned, but I'm landing on Song of Solomon on my anniversary and studied it all week, really for weeks. And so I'm dedicating this anniversary sermon to my dear wife, Song of Solomon. Here we go, guys. Love you, honey. Love you. Yeah, very good. Very good. Yeah. So I've never taught from Song of Solomon, so you might as well do that on your anniversary. So... Love you. Uh, let me give you a resource. This book is called The Song of Songs. This is the best commentary I've found uh, on the Song of Solomon, which is a very, very difficult book to understand. Just, I mean, there's, it's, it's hard. And so this one makes it very clear. This is written by a guy who's actually preached here uh, named Ian Dugid. D-U-G-U-I-D. D-U-G-U-I-D. If you go to Amazon, Song of Songs, uh, you'll find him. This is, this is very good. And of everyone I've read, he does the clearest job of explaining how to interpret the book, which I'm going to talk about a fair bit tonight before we look at the book, because it's not that easy to interpret on its own. So let's pray, and then we will jump, in, jump into a Song of Solomon. Lord, we thank you for your word. And some of us in the room will find this message more relevant Uh, than others. Lord, some of us will find this awkward, uh, including me perhaps at points. Some of us will find this 
um, hard to understand uh, and not sure we can interpret uh, this kind of poetry. And so we just pray tonight for clarity. We pray for the peace and comfort of the Holy Spirit. We pray that uh, for those who are hurting or struggling with guilt, we pray that the, the death and resurrection of Christ would bring repentance and freedom. Uh, we pray for those who are struggling with bad memories from their own past. We pray the healing work of Jesus would touch their hearts tonight. We pray for singles that you would give a great vision for purity and a longing for the day when you do bring a partner into their lives, a mate, a spouse to marry and to live their lives with and to experience sexual union with. We pray for married couples uh, who struggle in this area and who are confused in this area and who are disappointed in this area, uh, who are frustrated in this area, whatever the case may be. We pray for fresh hope and life and joy. And we pray the celebration of this book uh, would be their experience because it's the celebration of you and the, and the lover that you have given them to marry. So Lord, we trust you for all these things. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, tonight, I'm going to give you some tools so that you could hopefully study the book on your own, and I would really recommend you studying it on your own. But I want to talk, we're going to look at the first chapter tonight, but I want to do some introductory stuff. So it's Song of Solomon. Uh, I'd recommend opening your Bible or your phone, wherever you keep your Bible, and let's look at it. Um, so here's the question to start with. What is this book about? Because if I can be frank with everyone, if you just read through this book, if you just read through, there are sections where you will say, is, am I reading an erotic love poem? Th that's what you will say. If you read this through at points, and you will say, if I can be very frank, there are some images in here that are intimate where you'll say, does that mean what I think they're talking about, or do I have a dirty mind? Am I like looking at the Bible and thinking about sex, or is that... It, meaning sex is not dirty, but meaning am I thinking things that aren't there, you know, uh, meaning that's what I mean by that. So if you just read this, there's sections where you will come to that. And then you ask, as the church has, why is this in the Bible? For instance, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit are never mentioned in the book. Now, you would think that to get in the Bible, a minimum qualification for a book is that you mention God. God's never mentioned. That's also true in the book of Esther. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. So it's not the only book. But God is not mentioned in this book. So we've got some work to do. How do you understand a book that at points reads like an erotic love poem? How does that in the Bible? And how is a book in the Bible that does not ever mention God. And so if you're confused by that introduction, historically the church has been confused and has not known how to handle it. So hopefully we'll get some handles on it. Here's how I think you start. We ask what genre. Some of you guys are in high school or college. You're about to start back. So we're going to start interpreting some literature. I'm going to prepare you for your English lit class. What is a genre? What, what genre? What type of writing is this? It's not a letter. It's not a historical narrative. Uh, or anything like that. It is a, well, look at the first line. It tells us, the song of songs, which is Solomon's. It's a song. So it's poetry. And when it says the song of songs, it, that's superlative. It means this is the best of all songs. This is like the tune of all tunes. This is poem of all poems. So it is the best one ever written, is what the scripture says. This is a song of all songs. And it is one song, and it is more than one song, right? It is the song of songs, so it's superlative, but it's also multiple poems as we read. So there's multiple poems 
Uh, but because it's the song, there's one unifying theme. This is really important because if you don't understand this, you will read as a Christian unbeliever, I mean, not unbelievers, unmarried people having sex. That's how you will read this if you don't understand that there's a continuum. That, that it starts out with a couple, we're going to see, that's not married, though it reads like they're married. They're not married, and then they're going to get married, and then we're going to get some poetic description of the joy of their sexual relationship after marriage. So that's what we're going to get. But you need to know that it's one song that has a continuum, it has a development, it has a story through each of the poems that we will read, only one or two of them tonight. So they relate to one another. Okay, who is the author of the book? Well, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And I want to explain something here because this could be really confusing. When it says which is Solomon's, it can mean several things. It could mean what's most obvious, which is written by Solomon. But that immediately causes concern because this whole book is about one couple lovingly, exclusively giving their hearts, minds, and bodies to one another. And Solomon had a thousand wives and concubines, the Bible tells us. So Solomon would destroy the message of this by his lifestyle. How would you, would you like to hear a testimony of someone get up and say, I'm going to tell my testimony of marriage, I have a thousand wives. You're going to go, well, you know, man, I don't really, yeah, I don't think you're very credible with your lifestyle. So if Solomon wrote it, there's a couple of theories. He could have written it at the beginning of his life, with, the first, uh, with his first wife before he started marrying a lot of women. That could be it, so it's at the beginning. It could be written at the end of his life, and he's looking back over his life, and he's saying, looking at his own failure, and he's writing an idealized poem, this is very possible, of the ideal which he didn't live. And so seeing his name to it, it, it gives more of an ideal more than uh, his life. So I don't think it's autobiographical of Solomon, but it could be penned by him. But it doesn't have to be penned by him, because when it says, which is Solomon's, it can also mean several other things. They can be translated several ways. It could be uh, translated, uh, dedicated to Solomon, which is Solomon's. This is written for him, not by him, but for him. At which point, this is like, we dedicate this to a man who was known, you know, uh, as the king. And uh, the king is mentioned throughout here. So it could be written to him. Or, which is Solomon's can be translated, which is his style, written in Solomon's style. So it could be saying, we're going to write about the idealized love story, but it's going to be written with a king in it, kind of ideally about the king and what a, what a, you know, a love story about him. I, I think it's safest because you're going to get tripped up when you read it. If you go, really, Solomon said that? Why didn't he live that? So I think if, you think if you think he's the main character, if you think every time you read he, it's him, and you think about his life, that could cause a little, I'm not sure about that. So I think it's probably best to say, we don't know if he wrote it, because this could be translated different ways. We don't know if he wrote it. Um, it's probably not autobiographical. He may have written it about an ideal relationship. It's poetry, so it could just be, and I think it is, an idealized love story. So don't necessarily, we don't know for a fact every time it says he, that it's him speaking. I just want to say that, not to confuse you, but so that you don't get confused. It's best to say, we don't know for sure who the author is, but they're writing about an idealized love story. And the idealized love story could have reference to Solomon, could be dedicated to him. Uh, It certainly has a kingly figure in it. How do we interpret it? Okay, here is how most of the church throughout history has interpreted this book. They've interpreted it allegorically. 
An allegory is a story, where, or a, a, a writing, not necessarily a story, where every detail is symbolic of something else. And here's why. Because the church historically said there's no way there's a book in the Bible all about sex. There's no way. So what this must be is it must be talking, it's symbolic. It doesn't really mean what you think. And the problem with this interpretation is that you get crazy stuff. So historically, these are the kinds of things people have interpreted. We're going to read tonight. She's going to mention uh, this perfume sachet that she carries between her breasts. That's her language. And uh, so a, per- this, you know, a, a sachet is like a little packet of perfume that she wears between her breasts. And so historically, people, the allegorical interpretation says, well, one breast represents Moses, one represents Aaron. Uh, a common interpretation is one breast is the Old Testament, the other breast is the New Testament, and the sachet is Jesus lying between the Old and New Testament. And frankly, that's way more awkward to talk about. <laughs> that's awkward. If I thought I had to get up here and talk about Jesus lying between the breast of the Old and New Testament, <laughs> I would just rather tell you she's talking about her breast, okay? And I said the word, and there's some sixth graders giggling, but it's, that's what she's talking about, okay? So the allegorical interpretation is really, really troubling. And it gets more awkward because the woman is the people of God or the church, and the man is Jesus. And so the first thing we're going to read tonight is the woman saying, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. So how do you interpret Jesus? I want the church wanting Jesus to kiss them, whatever. It's just, it just doesn't make a very good way to interpret it. Gets, it gets awkward and confusing. Now, we are going to look for Christ uh, in the text because all of the Bible points to Jesus. So there is uh, interpretation that we do want to look at that talk about Christ, but not, it's not all allegorical. So if it's not allegorical, how do we interpret this love poem, which is an idealized love story dedicated to Solomon, maybe written by him, um, that is about this man and this woman. How do we read it? Here's how I think we read it. An actual poem reflecting actual love between an actual couple who have strong sexual longings before marriage and enjoy a beautiful sexual relationship after their wedding. That's what it's about. An actual couple, a real couple, writing poetry, uh, speaking poetry, actually singing poetry to one another. It's a song. Uh, who have longing sexually before they're married, who are married, and then in a holy way express those desires in a way that glorifies the Lord as a married couple. So if it's about a couple that loves each other and has sex after marriage, why is that in the Bible? I mean, still, we still don't know why it's in the Bible. I haven't answered that question yet. Why is it in the Bible? Well, the reason I think it's in the Bible, God wanted it in the Bible, uh, is because if we consider what kind of literature it is, it's one of the wisdom books of the Bible, like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And the wisdom books of the Bible show us an idealized life in a fallen world. So this gives, here's what this book does. It gives a great vision for sexual purity before marriage, And then it gives a great vision of sexual love, really ecstatic, thrilling, fulfilling sexual love uh, in marriage. And the reality is we all fall short of what's in this book. Single people who aren't married sexually sin with their desires and with their actions in cases and don't live up to this. Married couples are not speaking lovingly, caringly, romantically to their spouses all day and then uh, coming together 
and making love in a, you know, in the way that we read here, which is glorious, celebratory, uh, and this sort of thing all the time. This is not always happening. We all fall short of this, and when we fall short of this, we see that the various sins in our lives that cause us to fall short, and that points us immediately to Christ. We see we're not this, none of us are this couple. There's not a marriage in the room that goes, Song of Solomon, oh yeah, just have them get up and tell their story because it's right there. There's nobody. There's no single person that has followed everything that's going to be recommended to singles here. And so we see our need for Jesus Christ. That's one reason I think it's in there. And secondly, because marriage is a picture in the Bible of Christ and his love for the church, not allegorically. Allegorically means every detail. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Okay, how is Jesus kissing the church? That's an allegory. But to say generally, Jesus loves his bride and sacrificed and laid his life down for his bride, and we are to do the, the husbands are to do the same. That's a picture of Christ. That's not an allegory. And so it also gives us a picture of marriage. So let's jump in. That's, that's how we interpret it. So the genre, it is, uh, it is a poem. It's poetry. Uh, it is the idealized love story um, and marriage, wedding between a couple. And as we read it, we will have a vision for God's plan for us. We'll also see how we come short and we'll come to Christ, receive his forgiveness and his empowering to live the life uh, relationally that's described here. And that's how it functions without even mentioning God as a Christian book uh, for us to read and to study. So just that's how we'll approach the book and interpret it. So let's jump in and uh, look at, we're going to read 1-1 one, one through 2-7. And right away, you're going to see there's a lot of comparisons I don't understand. Then I'll try to walk through and, and make three points from the text and explain them. So here we go. Poetry, uh, Song of Solomon 1-1. One, one. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. That was she. Others, we will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. She, I am dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me, and they made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? He, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare my love to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. Others, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. She, while the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. He, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. She, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, 
a lily of the valleys. He, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. She, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sit in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me into his banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now this is, uh, well, let me, make a, let, me, let me make a point, and then I'm going to walk through it and show you it in the text, in the poem, and uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll walk it through. As, as we look at this, let me give you a little bit of what you're going to see as we go through. At this point, the couple is not married. They're likely betrothed because they're about to be married. So they're on the verge, they're going to get married, they're on the verge of marriage. That comes in chapter 4. So they're about to be married, evidently, um, but they're committed to getting married. So this isn't just someone who, you know, just sort of met someone, got their number, and started texting this stuff to them, okay? This is someone in a committed relationship about to be married, and at this point, they are yearning for one another. If you have an ESV study Bible, the section I just read to you, they gave a heading to it, and their heading was, lovers yearn for each other. I think that's what's going on here. So the first point I want to make is that sexual desire is a gift from God. Sexual desire is a gift from God, because these are two unmarried people who have serious desire for one another, and it's only going to develop more as we go through the other poems. God gives sexual attraction and sexual desire. Sexual desire is not bad. Sexual lust is perverted desire or perverted attraction. What do I mean by that? Sexual lust is sexual desire or sexual attraction. Uh, It is sexual longing. It is sexual fantasy for someone you're not married to. That's what sexual lust is. It's a longing, a desire, a fantasy for someone you're not married to. But sexual desire is not sinful. It's not wrong. It's given by God. Without it, people wouldn't get married. There wouldn't be another generation of children. So it is a gift from God as long as it is expressed in the right context. And that, as we're going to see, is in marriage. Okay, so this poem has some beginning. We don't get introduced to any characters. We don't get any, this is mind-blowing, Christians. Um, We don't get any setting. We don't get any background. We get a woman saying, I want that guy to be kissing me, and then I want him to take me into a private place called his chambers. That's how it starts. Now, you see why people said, why is that in the Bible? I mean, that's how it actually starts. It's a woman desiring. It's fi- she's filled with a passionate desire. And throughout this book, there's no shame and there's no apology attached to these desires, which we read. So she is desiring to be uh, kissed by this man. She says, your love is better than wine. Uh, so she's celebrating wine's a picture of love at various points in the poem, these poems. So she is desiring him. She's saying his love is greater than, uh, than wine. She not only desires his kisses, but his scent. There's a lot of aromatic images about romance and love in here. And um, 
So you see that a lot. So for instance, your love is better than wine, verse 3. Your anointing oils, which would be, I'll make, try to make some translations that are roughly the same. Your cologne, okay, uh, is fragrant. Your name is oil poured out, therefore virgins uh, love you. So she, she's thinking as well. She not only imagines uh, his kisses, but she's thinking about his cologne. Now, at this point, this is just her. So this is not, they're not together right now. If this was a musical and everybody's singing their part, she's on stage and the chorus of ladies is standing next to her. It's not till later in the chapter they start talking, singing to one another. So she's singing on her own. She's thinking about him. Uh, and um, she's, she's thinking about his cologne. And she makes this point that she's not drawn just to him because she desires him physically but she's drawn to his character. She says, your name is oil poured out. It's fragrant oil. So what she's saying is, here's what she's saying is, I'm not just, what I'm drawn to about this guy is his character. His name is his reputation. This guy's reputation is alluring to me. It's like she's saying, when you're cologne, it's like poured out cologne. It's like when the scent of cologne is there, you're aware of presence. What I'm aware of is the presence of his integrity and his character, and it's like aromatic. It's with you. That's what she's saying. It's like saying if you saw a commercial that had a cologne that was like godly, you know, new cologne, a commercial integrity for the pure godly man or something like that. I don't know. That's what it's like. She's like, it's your character that I'm drawn to, and here's one reason I know they're not married right here. She says, therefore, the virgins love you, if they're married, she's not saying all the single women like you. You don't say that to your husband. That's very inappropriate, okay? She's, she, he's eligible. He's a guy who's unmarried, and he's unattached. And the virgins, the women who aren't married, they got their eye on you, and they all know that what I'm talking about is true. They love you because you got character. You're stellar. You're upright. You're godly. So he's a good guy, and she's drawn. She wants that kind of guy kissing her, and she wants that kind of guy in the context of marriage taking her, uh, running together uh, into the privacy of his chambers. So you guys tracking me through me. The desire here is a, is a good thing. Uh, she calls him king. The, ki the, the king has brought me into his chambers. Again, she's, this hasn't actually happened, I don't think, at this point, because she's single. But king is it's probably, a, I don't know that it's Solomon. I think it's probably like, uh, dude, you're my king, like a lady saying that to her man. That's a good line, ladies. You're my king. You know, that, that'd be really romantic. So we're going to help you out here tonight. So being my anniversary and all. Um, so she's putting her desires out there. And here's another thing I want to notice. This is not a private affair. So this isn't over here where she's just like imagining and texting him all this stuff. She's accountable because she tells this to the chorus. There's this chorus of others. As we go, we're going to see they're called the daughters of Jerusalem. They say, verse 4, we will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than Ryan. Rightly do they love you. So there's other people from the beginning. She's involving other people in her desire for this guy. It's not a secret. She's telling someone who can sing about it and write a poem about it. That's what they're doing. It's a musical. Uh, so right now it's a monologue with the chorus, but there is an affirmation of desire. Uh, and this, this is, I mean, this comes out. It, she's, she's, she just comes out with it. She's letting you know what she's longing for. 
And yet we don't get, whoa, we don't get the chorus saying, you filthy, that's not what we get. This is in the Bible. So the point I'm trying to make is that desire in and of itself and longing in and of itself is not wrong. Now, if she fulfilled that prior to marriage, it would be. This is what Ian Duggett in the commentary I held up wrote about these first few verses. He said their eagerness, because he's going to say similar stuff, their eagerness for sexual union is not seen in any sense as an unspiritual or unsanctified desire. On the contrary, this was how it was intended to be in the beginning, one man and one woman being united and becoming one flesh. The song intends to teach us that sex is good and pure within marriage and is the appropriate object of longing and desire before marriage. The Song of Songs starts, after all, with the woman proclaiming, quote, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, which makes it clear that she has more in mind than merely sharing a Bible study or a cup of tea with her husband-to-be. The uninhibited celebration of the idealized love of the man and the woman provide a model for us of how love was intended to be at the beginning. Let me say a little bit more about the woman and tell you the trajectory of what's going to happen in the rest of the book. Um, And make this point, that sexual desire is a gift from God to be expressed in marriage for men and women. For men and women. The culture has an ideal of a woman who is provocative, who is uh, loose, who is um, both with her character and her speech and her dress, announcing her availability to men. And that's, that's idealized as a... Uh, you know, a woman who's desirable, who's hot, who's, that, that's an idealized in the culture. But sometimes in the church, they swing the absolute other way and assume that a Christian woman in marriage, uh, you know, well, wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily be um, a woman who carries those kinds of desires, that the sexual desires themselves are wrong and not the abuse or the flaunting Um, of that through a woman who's not acting in a chaste manner. And so I think it's important to see as we go through this, this woman, when she gets married, she is fully participative. And she is a sexual being from the beginning. Here's just a few points. One, One commentator said this, the woman's voice and desires dominate. She's not in the background. She starts the whole thing off. She's the first one speaking. It's not a feminist book where she's leading the relationship. It's not that. She's clearly looking to her king uh, to lead the relationship as they go. But she has desires, and she's letting them know, and she has longings. And when she's married, we will find her taking initiative and being fully involved. This will come in the sexual relationship. In fact, the last chapter says something. I'm just telling you a few things that are stretching. The last chapter says something that when she refers to their wedding night in, in chapter 8, she says, at that time, I, did she say awakened? Is that, yeah, I awakened you. She calls their coming together, the loss of their virginity and joined together in, in marriage. She says, I awakened you, is what she said. Now, he awakened her too. It was reciprocal. But but the point is that she's, she's not, uh, this isn't some kind of view like the, 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 that it's some kind of a macho approach where the man's really into sex and the good Christian wife is a servant and godly and supportive and, you know, uh, wants, to, uh, wants to take care of her man in a gracious, loving way. That's, that's not this lady. She's not passive. She is a participant in her, did I say something funny? Yeah. 
And so I was like, did I, did I say something bad? Did I miss that? Okay, I just know I'm going to say a bad word or something. So, uh, okay, so that's her. She, this gal is intense. Let me tell you what, she's daunting. At one point in chapter six, in chapter six, they're in the garden of love, and that's poetic, and it's exactly what you think it is. They're not literally out there in the garden of love. And here's what he says about his woman in the garden of love. He says, quote, she's as awesome as an army with banners. Now, they're married at that point. They're married in the garden of love. She is as awesome as an army with banners. He's like, when I am in the bedroom with my woman, she is like an army waving banners. That's what he's saying. She is, I don't know how to say this. She's powerful. I wrote this out to say the right thing, but I think she is erotically powerful. She is sexually robust. She is romantically tender, and she is soft for sure. But when she's a lover, she's as strong as an army coming with banners is what the guy says. That's what he says. I mean, I don't know how you can interpret that. I, I don't know. You know, I don't, I'm just telling you what he said. He says it in chapter 6. She takes initiative. She makes invitations. There's one scene where she goes down. We'll look at this. She goes down to the nut orchard. He's working down in the orchard, and she's, um, she's expectant, and she goes and sees him. I mean, this woman, is, she is, she's a stick of dynamite, okay? <laughs> and the reason I'm emphasizing this, why am I making these points? I mean, I, they are funny, right? But I'm not really trying to be a comedian, but they are funny. But, but I'm trying to emphasize this because People who don't know the scripture have a very wrong view of what God thinks about sexuality. And our culture, our culture says, would assume that Christian, modest Christian women are repressed and are, you know, it's like, I don't know what they think, but they're just, they they are just, they would never, uh, you know, they they will, sex is a chore if they're uh, a married Christian woman, they certainly wouldn't enjoy because that would be sinful. They wouldn't have a sexual longing because we know sexual longings are sinful according to the church. I'm trying to make the point that they're not within marriage. And this gal is the case. She is, in this ideal love poem, idealized love poem, she is a stick of dynamite. And before I'm getting a bunch of men doing amens and saying, yeah, when's this podcast available? We're going to listen to this on date night or whatever. Before I get all the men getting all excited, let me say, she's a stick of dynamite, but when we read this, he lit her fuse. And here's how he lit her fuse. He's tender. He's caring. He's romantic with his speech. He uses words of love. He's writing and singing poetry. Okay, so this isn't Bubba in the recliner saying, hey, woman, make me a sandwich and let's see what happens after that. That's not, that's not what, he's not a chauvinistic demanding, yeah, the preacher said uh, Christian women are to be like this gal. How, well, how come you're not? Well, Bubba, because you're not. You're not this guy. <laughs> You start writing love poetry and preferring your wife and serving her and caring for her, and she's a stick of dynamite, but somebody had to light her fuse. That's what I'm trying to say. So as we go through this, that is what we're going to find, is that the relationship is it's built upon a passionate love and a care and a, um, um, a devotion and an exclusivity. This dude's not out looking at pornography all the time and then wondering why his wife. No, this dude's got singular devotion. He's caring. He's laying down his life for his wife. She is thrilled. She's, she's responsive and she's taking uh, initiative. 
And so the, 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 what I'm trying to say is the biblical picture of a sexual relationship is way beyond what the world offers. The world says the church is sexually repressive, and it's the world. Young people that are out hooking up either anonymously or with little knowledge of a relationship, they don't know anything about what's in this book experientially, know nothing about it. People that are just thinking sex is just a bi- biological function, some, some kind of drive, urge, uh, that they just want to feel, they know nothing about what Song of Solomon, I'm, I'm only three verses in, but they know nothing about what this book's going to teach. And so it's backwards. It is people who oppose the biblical sexual ethic, who say freedom means I can do whatever I want. Uh, no, freedom means that when I live according to God's design and I live in the parameters and the fences he gives me, it's glorious. And we get women like this and we get guys like this. And who in the world doesn't read this and go, wow, where where do you find these people? You find them in the church believing the Bible. That's where we should find them. And so sex is a powerful thing, powerful thing when experienced uh, appropriately. You got all that from those three verses. Well, I'm telling you stuff that's coming later in the book, okay? So sexual desire is a gift of God. Number two, words of love are the foundation for the act of love. And when I say act of love, there's a lot of acts of love. Taking out the trash is an act of love. There's a lot of acts of love, but I mean sexual union, their sexual relationship. So words of love are the foundation. The couple's not together until chapter four physically, but much of what we get throughout the poem is affirmation, compliments, uh, love, devotion. I mean, here's a good example. The woman is insecure about her appearance. So that didn't start in modern days. Once there was television and once there were uh, an internet, then ladies looked and compared themselves and they were insecure about their appearance. That, that's in this book. Verse 5, I am very dark, she says, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. What does she mean she is dark? This has nothing to do with her race. She's Middle Eastern, so she's probably, you know, her skin, if you think about someone in the Middle East, that's probably what her natural skin tone is. But, uh, so it has nothing to do with her race that she feels bad about being dark. It has to do what? That she's worked outside. The sun has looked upon me, and my brothers have made me keep the vineyards. So in her culture, a woman who was darker than her normal given complexion was someone who was poor because you had to work outside. So if you worked out in the fields, you were a lower status because you were a worker. Rich people stayed indoors. And so rich people, a rich lady's skin, regardless of where she started on the color spectrum, wouldn't get darker by being outside. So she's saying, I don't look upon me and standards of beauty are just, they change, don't they? Because probably in this day, if you were plump, you were attractive too. Because if you're skinny, you don't have enough to eat. And you're having to work outside. The little bit you eat, you burn in the calories. So ugly in this culture is skinny and tan. That's ugly in this culture. That, that biblically, the standards of beauty change. Skinny and tan is ugly in the Song of Solomon. So she's saying, don't look at me. And we're like, well, I should go to the tanning booth. No, don't look at me because, I, because you're going to see I'm a poor woman who worked in the vineyards. And I haven't taken care. I took care of those vineyards, but I haven't taken care of my vineyard, which is, a, uh, which is a picture of her body. And sometimes more than that. Sometimes it's more of a sexual reference. But here it just means her body. I haven't taken care of my appearance is what he's saying. So what does he say? Hey, you know, get over yourself. Don't, why is your self-esteem so low? That's not what he says. Look what he says, verse 9. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments. Your neck 
with strings of jewels. Now, it's cultural. She feels bad about herself, and he says, you look like a horse. So that's, <laughs> that's, cult- that's cultural. Don't say that. The, you're my king was a good line. You look like a mare. That's not a good line, okay? Because you're going, wow. How did what happens in chapter 4 happen after he called her a horse? I want to know about that, but okay. So, but what he's saying is you are, you are glorious. You know, the, the best horses would be the ones that would be in Pharaoh's chariots, and they were lovely with ornaments. So what he's saying is, look, you are, uh, you are dazzling. You're decorated. You're like the finest, is what he's saying. Girl, you're fine, he's saying, you know? the finest. He doesn't dismiss her concerns, but he wants her confident in his affection. Is your spouse confident in your affection? So we don't just go through and go, hey, well, yeah, let's get to chapter four. Let's get that going. No, if you're married, it's about, is my spouse confident in my affection? Is my spouse affirmed, especially in areas where my spouse is unsure? because she's unsure. Don't look at me. I'm, oh, I look like a poor woman who's not taking care of herself. Oh, you're, you're like Pharaoh's, in Pharaoh's you know, chariots, what he's going on. Look what he says, verse 15. Behold, you're beautiful. You are beautiful, she says it. He says it more than once. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. A lily was a regular flower. Jesus said the lilies of field. They're here one day, and then they're gone. You know, Matthew 6. It's, it's a regular flower. Here's what he says. She says, I'm, not, I'm nothing special. I'm just a lily out in a big valley. Look at this line, verse 2. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. The other women are prickly, thorny bushes. You're not a lily out in the valley. They're all prickly. Get away from me. You're shrubby. Okay? You're shrub-like. You're pr- pointy. You're stickly, you have no color. Yeah, that's what the other women are. But you're the lily among the brambles. See, he goes right after where she's insecure, and he builds her up. So this book's not just about sex. It's not just about ultimately them consummating their marriage. It's about a love relationship that's expressed through affection. And he's coming alongside her and caring for her. Um, So you see, there's there's that. She's going to do the same uh, thing as well, because look what she says, uh, verse three. I'm in chapter two. I need to move here. Chapter two, verse three. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. She says the same thing. There's a forest of trees, but my man has got apples, you know, on his branches. The other trees are regular, but he's a fruit tree. He's and the, what does she say about that? Why is that special? With great delight, verse three, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. What is she saying? He, I'm secure with him. I didn't want to be in the sun because it darkened me and makes me look poor and unkempt in that culture. But I'm in his shade. When I'm with him, it's like the sun can't even get to me. He protects me. He shades me. This is an engaged couple, okay? These aren't two eighth graders who just got a smartphone texting, okay? That's not what the, this isn't somebody Snapchatting it to the other 10th uh, uh, graders in the biology class. These people are engaged. They're about to be married, and so they're responsible. So they're saying things that they can back up with the responsibility of marriage real soon, okay? So I do need to say that, uh, and the parents of 8th graders just said thank you uh, because we're not recommending this. 
for people, this kind of language and relationship for people who aren't on the verge of marriage. Um, and they've already declared their, detention, uh, their intentions and the core people know about it and are supporting the, the chorus is saying, yes, he's great, go for it. So there's a lot here. I want to make clear about that because we have young people in the room. But anyway, at any rate, th- this is what he is, uh, she's protecting him and being with him is sweet. His apples are sweet to my taste. There is going to be some taste stuff that's sexual. I don't think it is here. But there will be taste stuff later uh, in, the, in the letter, I don't think, in the poems. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. But it's sweet to be with him. He protects me at my most vulnerable place. Powerful. The language of love is the foundation of the act of love. There's all this language that expresses their heart and service and care and tenderness before they get to their wedding. Very, very Im- important to note that. They also have a lot of words about wanting to be together. Throughout this thing, it's like they always want to be together. So she starts. She's the first one saying that. Um, Look at verse 7, chapter 1. Tell me whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? I can't wait for you to get off work. Where are you taking your lunch break with the the flock? Because I want to come down and see you. I'm telling you, she's a stick of dynamite. So I want to see you, she says. Where are you? And his line is, verse 8, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats by the shepherds. What he's saying here, if you do not know, he's saying, okay, you know where I'm going to be. You've been stalking me on Instagram for six months. What do you mean, where am I going to be at lunch? Where am I going to be at lunch? If you don't know, oh, just follow the shepherds. You'll find out where I am, and there you'll see me. There's nothing sexual here. She's just, I can't wait till he gets off work. Where is he going to be? That, there's a lot of stuff in here. She's actually going to have dreams about where is he, and she has a dream later where she's going to run into the city and look for him. So they, there's these words of longing to be together. They, they want to be together. Words of affirmation, that's presence, fellowship, companionship. I want to see you at lunch. A lot of words like that. There's a lot of speaking of scent as well. I, I'm, I'm going to skip that. Verses 12 through 14, I'm out of time. She talks about different, how, uh, different uh, scents. Uh, I, I got to say that though, because I did say the Old Testament and New Testament. Verse 13, uh, my beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. What she's saying is I carry a perfume sachet near my heart here. And whenever I smell that perfume, um, I think of him. It's like my sachet is always with me and there's the aroma of my sachet. It's like he's always with me is what she's saying. She's not saying he's laying like that prior to their marriage. She's not saying that. But she's saying he's like that to me. He's always with me wherever I am. So there's just this longing to be together throughout. Um, Oh, let's see. Uh, Okay, Uh, let's just just finish with this. Verses, uh, verse 7. I'm going to go to verse 7 of chapter 2. So sexual desire and longing is not sinful. The language of love is the foundation for marriage and which leads to the act of love. And then verse 7, I want to say this. Do not stir up uh, love before its time. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So she's having all these situations. She wants to go to his banqueting house. She's just said that in the verses before. She's lovesick, verse 5. Uh, she wants to go see him during the day. She wants kisses of his mouth. Can we go to his chambers? She's longing. This girl's ready to get married. Let's move the date up. She's ready to get married, okay? And, and uh, yet, here's what she's saying to the daughters of Jerusalem. 
do not stir up or awaken love. Gazelles and does are throughout the letter. They're gonna, the poems are going to represent love. So by the power of love, I'm telling you, don't stir up love prematurely. That's what she is telling them. Don't do it until you're obviously ready to make a lifelong commitment. Uh, don't, be, don't be pursuing this kind of uh, deep romance if it's not going anywhere. I mean, certainly she's, she's going somewhere with this. Um, but, there is the, uh, but there's just a sense of don't prematurely stir it up. Uh, chapter 4, they're going to get married. Chapter 5, he's going to call her my bride. Or chapter 4, she's going to call her my bride six times. So this all is before marriage. And she's saying they're going to be married. They connect sex with marriage. But don't prematurely uh, stir up this kind of love, the kind of sexual love. Don't prematurely give yourself sexually. There is a clear warning here that she is giving um, to the other uh, to the other daughters of Jerusalem who are like her in the midst of it. So she has something to say about that. Why does she talk about that? Why does she say, don't stir it up? Because she's just said in verse 5, I am sick with love. Get me some apples, which are the sign of love, and also him, right? He's like an apple tree, so get him to me. Get his presence to me. I'm sick with love. Love sickness always had to do in poetry of this time with absence and not presence. He's not with me. He's absent. I'm sick with love. This is so powerful. The longing, the desire, the romance, it is so overwhelming, she says. And then she says, guys, don't get this going until you're ready. Until you're ready, because it is, dam- it is dangerous, it's damaging. Love, sexual love in particular, is like a powerful river. And when it is in its banks, it is a wonderful thing to behold. And you can jump in the rapids and take a ride, and it's a gift from God. But when a powerful river overflows its banks and floods and it leaves the confines of where it's designed to be, it's destructive and it wreaks havoc. And she's saying, don't stir this up. I know we had some fun here tonight a little bit. I'm not sure how much that was real fun and nervous laughter. I don't know. But, uh, she, but she's saying, don't let that go. Because if you stir it up for time, it's going to ultimately, don't awaken it until it pleases. Don't awaken what I'm talking about and about to get into here, she's saying. Don't do that prematurely because it's ultimately the great gift can be destructive in nature. Let me read you one more, uh, one more little quote here. Uh, and then we're about wrapped up here. Ian, wrote about, Ian Duguid wrote about this from his commentary as well. He says, love is an extremely powerful emotion. It can cause a kind of temporary insanity, that's kind of where she is, in which we do things we would not otherwise do in the grip of the intense feelings it evokes. The song affirms the appropriateness and beauty of those feelings in their proper place. There's nothing wrong with the passionate desire for sexual union, for the eager longing to be embraced by one's beloved in the house of wine, which is a verse we skipped that she said. However, as the rest of Scripture makes clear, the proper place and time for such union is only within holy marriage. Those who are as yet unmarried, such as the daughters of Jerusalem, are warned about the danger of stirring up the feelings before their time. In our contemporary context, we live in a culture that spends much of its waking time seeking to stir up our desires for love and sex, a culture in which sex outside of marriage is regarded as normal. The woman in the song urges all of us to beware of those temptations, not because sex is dirty or insipid, but precisely because it is beautiful and potent. It is a glorious gift given to us by God, intended to bond two people inseparably together for life by its unique 
and overwhelming power. Don't stir it up because this bonds for life in its unique and overwhelming power. So to the unmarried, I want to say I'm going to have to do a whole message that I hope will be encouraging and helpful, but uh, listen to the message that the woman tells us right here. Listen to it. God calls you to wait, not to deprive you, but to bless you. Not to restrict you from something good, but to save you for something better. He doesn't want you to experience a cheap imitation that you take into your marriage. Ask any Christian couple, if you're single, ask any Christian couple that slept around before they got married and ask them if they had to do it over again, would they do it? You won't find one that will say, oh yes, that's exactly what I should have done. Now there's grace, that we don't live with regret, there's forgiveness and grace for those of us who've sinned in the past, we can be forgiven, we can have grace, it's not like your life is, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying there are, there are challenges that come into marriages um, that many people face and uh, because of that we can face. So anyway, just be wise about that. God f- restores and forgives, but God wants to preserve you for something that's, as you read this book, better than you imagine. Better than you imagine. To the married, God calls us to passionate marriage. Man, I've gone over time, but I, I just got to say this. I'm sorry, I, I, because this is really on my heart, and I didn't manage my time, and so that's getting j- dumped on you, and so I'm sorry, but I, I just got to say this. What, what would happen, and I, we haven't read it all. I've just read a little bit to you, but what would happen in the world if every Christian marriage looked like what we're reading in this book? What would be different? What conclusions would the world draw if the average Christian marriage wasn't passionless, if the average Christian marriage wasn't coasting and plateaued or on a downhill? What if the average Christian marriage displayed compelling tenderness, like we read here, sacrificial love, like we read here, respect, verbal encouragement, romantic compliments, cherished companionship, and that all undergirded a sexual relationship that was consistently joyful and growing with age. If that was every Christian marriage, as we're going to read here, what would the world be saying? If that's what we were known for, what if we were known more for what we are for rather than what we're against? What if our lives were so compelling that the world just didn't know our self-righteous social media post about how everybody else is a sinner? But what if they didn't see that and what they saw in our lives was a compelling love between husbands and wives where the glory of God was shining through one flesh relationships, where the love of Christ for his church was being seen through people who spoke tenderly, caringly, who were drawn to one another. I know they're not, you're saying, well, yeah, they're just dating. They're just engaged. It's going to continue on. It's going to continue on where there's a longing to be together, where, where there, there's a love. What if people in the world thought that Christians weren't just cranky people telling everybody else what kind of sex they can and cannot have, and they looked at us, and they came around us, and they came into the church, and maybe they'd say, I don't know that I agree with all your ethics, but how can I have a marriage like you have? What if that was the witness? What if the witness was, I don't know what I believe about Jesus yet, but how'd you get that? After five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, how are you like this? Because I'm not like that. People in the world aren't like that. It takes Jesus to be like this. It takes the Holy Spirit to be like this. It takes community to help one another so that we can be like this. What if the church and our marriages were so compelling that the world just didn't hear our rhetoric and then look at our lives and go, man, 
you've got nothing to offer. Why, why would I want what you've got? It seems restrictive. You read this, go, this is restrictive. This is glorious. This is how God created it to be. What if our marriages were that way? And what if, yes, we drew a line and said, this is what God says, as I'm doing tonight. This is sinful. This is acceptable and glorious. Yes, we drew a line, but our lives were compelling by example. What if it glorified God? Danny Aiken said in his commentary, one of the ways we display God's glory in marriage is being passionate for our mate. Do we ever think about that? That one of my best witnesses as a married person, I want to grow here, one of my best witnesses is passion for my wife. Want to be with her, love her, close to her, care for her, can't keep my hands off her. That's what this book would teach. After all these years of marriage, there's no, the world has no explanation of that because love is the ultimate apologetic. Love for one another, a loving in a marriage that represents Christ in the church. So I had to go over to say that because as I think about, the, I'm going to talk about the culture war. As I think about the culture war, I think conservative Christians, I just think we're aiming the wrong way on it. We're big on words and really, really small on example. We're big on rhetoric, and we are small on love, oftentimes. Often, not everybody, not everybody, but oftentimes. I think what will change the world is not when the world starts acting more like Christians, but when Christians start acting more like Christians. And when the marriages in the church are light in the darkness, and when we get our act together, and we're, not, we're, we're primarily concerned about how can we glorify the Lord in our own lives, and we're humble and repentant and pursuing our spouses, and our single adults and, and young people are reserving themselves sexually for marriage in joy, satisfied in Jesus. How do you do that? That's a testimony, man. That's when revival will come. Revival will come when we are demonstrating with this ideal love when this is in our marriage. It displays the gospel and it opens a door to say, where'd you get that and how can I get some of that? Because I haven't seen that anywhere. And maybe they don't agree, maybe they don't believe Jesus, maybe they don't follow, but at least it's a compelling witness that, that sparks their curiosity. Sparks their curiosity. Well, Christ is the perfect lover. He gave his life for us, sacrificed for his bride. And where we have all as singles and marrieds failed in many ways, sexually, relationally, lovingly, we've all failed. But Jesus loves his church. Jesus gave his life for us. Jesus is the groom to the bride, which is the people of God, the church. And he faithfully loved us. And he forgives us when we, like the woman, were uh, unlovely in our own view. God came and loved us, set his affection on us, gave his son for us, and gave us new life. And we can come to him in repentance and receive forgiveness and receive power to be singles who are sexually pure, to be dating and engaged couples that are sexually pure, even with pre-engagement or engaged longing for sexual union, and married couples that are growing in our relationship, not plateauing, but growing, maybe a little bit at a time. Maybe we're a mess, but we just a little bit at a time and growing into this ideal because of the love of Jesus and the power of the Spirit and then displaying that to a lost world who hears a lot of wah, 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 like Charlie Brown's teacher, wah, wah, wah. that's how they hear, but they don't see that's beautiful. Your marriage is beautiful. It's glorious. What happened? What's your secret? That's by God's grace what we want the world to see and to desire. And they do. They do see that, but we want to see it. Let's pray.
You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org. Thank you.